0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk The Adventures of Ulysses by Charles Lamb CHAPTER TWO On went the single ship, till it came to the island of Aea, where Circe, the dreadful daughter of the sun, dwelt. She was deeply skilled in magic, a haughty beauty, and had hair like the sun. The sun was her parent, and begot her and her brother Aetes, such another as herself, upon Percy, daughter of Oceanus. Here a dispute arose among Ulysses' men, which of them should go ashore to explore the country, for there was a necessity that some should go to procure water and provisions, their stock of both being nigh spent. But their hearts failed them when they called to mind the shocking fate of their fellows, whom the Lystrigonians had eaten, and those which the foul Cyclop Polyphemus had crushed between his jaws which moved them so tenderly in the recollection that they wept. But tears yet supplied any man's wants. This Ulysses knew full well, and dividing his men, all that were left, into two companies, at the head of one of which was himself, and at the head of the other Euryclocus, a man of tried courage, he cast lots which of them should go up into the country, and the lot, Fell upon Euryclecus and his company, two and twenty in number, who took their leave with tears of Ulysses and his men that stayed, whose eyes wore the same wet badges of weak humanity, for they surely thought never to see these their companions again, but that on every coast where they should come they should find nothing but savages and cannibals. Euryclecus and his party proceeded up the country till in a dale they descried the house of circe built of bright stone by the roadside before her gate lay many beasts as wolves lions leopards which by her art of wild she had rendered tame these arose when they saw strangers and ramped upon their hinder paws and fawned when euryclecus and his men who dreaded the effects of such monstrous kindness. And staying at the gate, they heard the enchantress within, sitting at her loom, singing such strains as suspended all mortal faculties, while she wove a web, subtle and glorious, and of a texture inimitable on earth, as all the house of the deities are. Strains so ravishingly sweet provoked even the sagest and prudentest heads amongst the party to knock and call at the gate. The shining gate the enchantress opened and bade them come in and feast. They, unwise, followed, all but Euryclochus, who stayed without the gate, suspicious that some train was laid for them. Being entered, she placed them in chairs of state and set before them meal and honey and smyrna wine but mixed with baneful drugs of powerful enchantment when they had eaten of these and drunk of her cup she touched them with her charming rod and straight they were transformed into swine having the bodies of swine the bristles and snout and grunting noises of that animal only they still retained the minds of men which made them the more to lament their brutish transformation. Having changed them, she shut them up in her sty with many more whom her wicked sorceries had formerly changed, and gave them swine's food, mast and acorns and chestnuts to eat. Euryclochus, who had beheld nothing of these sad changes from where he was stationed without the gate, only instead of his companions that entered, who he thought had all vanished by witchcraft, beheld a herd of swine, hurried back to the ship to give an account of what he had seen, but so frighted and perplexed that he could give no distinct report of anything, only he remembered a palace and a woman singing at her work, and gates guarded by lions, but his companions, he said, were all vanished. Then Ulysses, suspecting some foul witchcraft, snatched his sword and his bow and commanded Euryclocus instantly to lead him to the place. But Euryclocus fell down and, embracing his knees, besought him by the name of a man whom the gods had in their protection not to expose his safety and the safety of all of them to certain destruction. Do thou then stay, Euryclocus, answered Ulysses. EAT THOU AND DRINK IN THE SHIP IN SAFETY, WHILE I GO ALONE UPON THIS ADVENTURE, NECESSITY FROM WHOSE LAW IS NO APPEAL, COMPELS ME. SO SAYING, HE QUITTED THE SHIP AND WENT ON SHORE, ACCOMPANIED BY NONE. NONE HAD THE hardihood TO OFFER TO PARTAKE THAT PERILOUS ADVENTURE WITH HIM, SO MUCH THEY DREADED THE ENCHANTMENTS OF THE WITCH. SINGLY HE PURSUED HIS JOURNEY TILL HE CAME TO THE SHINING GATES WHICH STOOD BEFORE HER MANSION. But when he essayed to put his foot over her threshold, he was suddenly stopped by the apparition of a young man bearing a golden rod in his hand, who was the god Mercury. He held Ulysses by the wrist to stay his entrance, and, whither wouldst thou go, he said, O thou most erring of the sons of men, knowest thou not that this is the house of the great Circe, where she keeps thy friends in a loathsome sty, changed from the fair forms of men into the detestable and ugly shapes of swine. Art thou prepared to share their fate, from which nothing can ransom thee? But neither his words nor his coming from heaven could stop the daring foot of Ulysses, whom compassion for the misfortune of his friends had rendered careless of danger which when the god perceived, he had pity to see valour so misplaced, and gave him the flower of the herb molly, which is sovereign against enchantments. The molly is a small, unsightly root, its virtues little known and in low estimation. The dull shepherd treads on it every day with his clouted shoes, but it bears a small white flower, which is medicinal against charms, blights, mildews and damps. Take this in thy hand, said Mercury, and with it boldly enter her gates. When she shall strike thee with her rod, thinking to change thee, as she has changed thy friends, boldly rush in upon her with thy sword, and extort from her the dreadful oath of the gods, that she will use no enchantments against thee, then force her to restore thy abused companions. He gave Ulysses the little white flower, and, instructing him how to use it, vanished. When the god was departed, Ulysses with loud knockings beat at the gate of the palace. The shining gates were opened as before, And great Circe, with hospitable cheer, invited in her guest. She placed him on a throne with more distinction than she had used to his fellows. She mingled wine in a costly bowl, and he drank of it, mixed with those poisonous drugs. When he had drunk, she struck him with her charming rod, and, "'To thy sty!' she cried. "'Out, swine, mingle with your companions!' but those powerful words were not proof against the preservation which mercury had given to ulysses he remained unchanged and as the god had directed him boldly charged the witch with his sword as if he meant to take her life which when she saw and perceived that her charms were weak against the antidote which ulysses bore about him she cried out and bent her knees beneath his sword embracing his and said Who, or what manner of man art thou? Never drank any man before thee of this cup, But he repented it in some brute's form. Thy shape remains unaltered as thy mind. Thou canst be none other than Ulysses, Renowned all the world for wisdom, Whom the fates have long since decreed That I must love. This haughty bosom bends to thee. O Ithacan, a goddess woos thee to her bed. O Circe! he replied, How canst thou treat of love or marriage with one whose friends have been turned into beasts? And now offerest him thy hand in wedlock, only that thou mightst have him in thy power to live the life of a beast with thee, naked, effeminate, subject to thy will, perhaps to be advanced in time to the honour of place in thy sty? What pleasure canst thou promise which may tempt the soul of a reasonable man, thy meat spiced with poison, or thy wines drugged with death? Thou must swear to me that thou wilt never attempt against me the treasons which thou hast practised upon my friends. The Enchantress, won by the terror of his threats, or by the violence of that new love which she felt kindling in her veins for him, swore by Styx the great oath of the gods, that she mediated no injury to him. Then Ulysses made show of gentler treatment, which gave her hopes of inspiring him with a passion equal to that which she felt. She called her handmaids, four that served her in chief, who were daughters to her silver fountains, to her sacred rivers, and to her consecrated woods, to deck her apartments, to spread rich carpets, and set out her silver tables with dishes of the purest gold, and meat as precious as that which the gods eat, to entertain her guests one brought water to wash his feet and one brought wine to chase away with a refreshing sweetness the sorrows that had come of late so thick upon him and hurt his noble mind they strewed perfumes on his head and after he had bathed in a bath of the choicest aromatics they brought him rich and costly apparel to put on then he was conducted to a throne of massy silver and a regale fit for jove when he banquets was placed before him but the feast which ulysses desired was to see his friends the partners of his voyage once more in the shapes of men and the food which could give him nourishment must be taken in at his eyes because he missed this sight he sat melancholy and thoughtful and would taste of none of the rich delicacies placed before him which when circe noted she easily defined the cause of his sadness, and leaving the seat in which she sat throned, went to her sty, and let abroad his men, who came in like swine, and filled the ample hall, where Ulysses sat, with gruntings. Hardly had he time to let his sad eye run over their altered forms and brutal metamorphosis, when, with an ointment which he smeared over them, suddenly their bristles fell off, and they started up, in their own shapes men as before they knew their leader again and clung about him with joy of their late restoration and some shame for their late change and wept so loud blubbering out their joy in broken accents that the palace was filled with the sound of pleasing mourning and the witch herself great circe was not unmoved at the sight to make her atonement complete she sent for the remnant of Ulysses's men, who stayed behind at the ship, giving up their great commander for lost, who when they came and saw him again alive, circled with their fellows, no expression can tell what joy they felt, they even cried out with rapture, and to have seen their frantic expressions of mirth a man might have supposed that they were just in sight of their country earth, the cliffs of rocky Ithaca only Euryclochus would hardly be persuaded to enter that palace of wonders, for he remembered with a kind of horror how his companions had vanished from his sight. Then great Circe spake, and gave order that there should be no more sadness among them, nor remembering of past sufferings, for as yet they feared like men that are exiles from their country, and if a gleam of mirth shot among them, it was suddenly quenched with the thought of their helpless and homeless condition. Her kind persuasions wrought upon Ulysses and the rest that they spent twelve months in all manner of delight with her in her palace, for Circe was a powerful magician, and could command the moon from her sphere, or unroot the solid oak from its place to make it dance for their diversion and by the help of her illusions she could vary the taste of pleasures and contrive delights, recreations and jolly pastimes to fetch the day about from sun to sun and rock the tedious year as in a delightful dream. At length Ulysses awoke from the trance of the faculties into which her charms had thrown him, and the thought of home returned with tenfold vigour to goad and sting him that home where he had left his virtuous wife Penelope and his young son Telemachus. One day, when Circe had been lavish of her caresses, and was in her kindest humour, he moved her subtly, and as it were afar off, the question of his home return, to which she answered firmly, O Ulysses, it is not in my power to detain one whom the gods have destined to further trials, But leaving me before you pursue your journey home, you must visit the house of Aedes, or Death, to consult the shade of Tiresias, the Tibetan prophet, to whom alone, of all the dead, Proserpine, Queen of Hell, has committed the secret of future events. It is he that must inform you whether you shall ever see again your wife and country." oh circe he cried that is impossible who shall steer my course to pluto's kingdom never ship has strength to make that voyage seek no guide she replied but raise you your mast and hoist your white sails and sit in your ship in peace the north wind shall waft you through the seas till you shall cross the expanse of the ocean And come to where grow the poplar groves, And willows pale of prosperine, Where Pyriflegygon, and Cocytus, And Acheron mingle their waves. Cocytus is an arm of Styx, The forgetful river. Here dig a pit, And make it a cubit broad, And a cubit long, And pour in milk, and honey, and wine, And the blood of a ram, And the blood of a black ewe, and turn away thy face while thou pourest in, and the dead shall come flocking to taste the milk and the blood, but suffer none to approach thy offering till thou hast inquired of Tiresias all which thou wishest to know. He did as great Circe had appointed. He raised his mast and hoisted his white sails, and sat in his ship in peace. The north wind wafted him through the seas till he crossed the ocean and came to the sacred woods of Proserpine. He stood at the confluence of the three floods and digged a pit as she had given directions and poured in his offering the blood of a ram, the blood of a black ewe, milk and honey and wine. And the dead came to his banquet, aged men and women and youths and children who died in infancy, but none of them would he suffer to approach and dip their thin lips in the offering, till Tiresias was served, not though his own mother was among the number, whom now for the first time he knew to be dead. For he had left her living when he went to Troy, and she had died since his departure, and the tidings never reached him. Though it irked his soul to use constraint upon her, Yet in compliance with the injunction of great Circe, he forced her to retire along with the other ghosts. Then Tiresias, who bore a golden scepter, came and lapped of the offering, and immediately he knew Ulysses and began to prophesy. He denounced, Woe to Ulysses! Woe! Woe! and many sufferings! Through the anger of Neptune for the putting out of the eye of the sea god's son, Yet there was safety after suffering if they could abstain from slaughtering the oxen of the sun after they landed in the triangular island. For Ulysses, the gods had destined him from a king to become a beggar and to perish by his own guests unless he slew those who knew him not. This prophecy, ambiguously delivered, was all that Tiresias was empowered to unfold or else there was no longer place for him. For now the souls of the other dead came flocking in such numbers, tumultuously demanding the blood, that freezing horror seized the limbs of the living Ulysses, to see so many, and all dead, and he the only one alive in that region. Now his mother came and lapped the blood, without restraint from her son and now she knew him to be her son and inquired of him why he had come alive to their comfortless habitations and she said that affliction for Ulysses's long absence had preyed upon her spirits and brought her to the grave. Ulysses' soul melted at her moving narration and forgetting the state of the dead and that the airy texture of disembodied spirits does not admit of the embraces of flesh and blood, he threw his arms about her to clasp her. The poor ghost melted from his embrace and, looking mournfully upon him, vanished away. Then he saw other females, Tyro who when she lived was the paramour of neptune and by him had pelias and neleus antiope who bore two like sons of to jove amphion and Zethus, founders of thebes alcina the mother of hercules with her fair daughter afterwards her daughter-in-law megara there also ulysses saw jacasta the unfortunate mother and wife of Oedipus, who, ignorant of kin, wedded with her son, and when she had discovered the unnatural alliance, for shame and grief hanged herself. He continued to drag a wretched life above the earth, haunted by the dreadful furies. There was Leda, the wife of Tyndarus, the mother of the beautiful Helen, and of the two brave brothers, Castor and Pollux, who obtained his grace from jove that being dead they should enjoy life alternately living in pleasant places under the earth for pollux had prayed that his brother castor who was subject to death as the son of tinderus should partake of his own immortality which he derived from an immortal sire this the fates denied therefore pollux was permitted to divide his immortality with his brother castor dying and living alternatively. There was Iphimedia, who bore two sons to Neptune, that were giants, Otus and Ephialtes. Earth, in her prodigality, never nourished bodies to such portentous size and beauty as these two children were of, except Orion. At nine years old, they had imaginations of climbing to heaven to see what the gods were doing, they thought to make stairs of mountains and were for piling ossa upon Olympus and setting Pelion upon that and had perhaps performed it if they had lived till they were striplings but they were cut off by death in the infancy of their ambitious project. Phaedra was there and Procris and Ariadne mournful of Theseus's desertion and Mira and Clymene and Eryphile who preferred gold before wedlock faith. But now came a mournful ghost. That late was Agamemnon, the son of Atreus, the mighty leader of all, the host of Greece, and their confederate kings that warred against Troy. He came with the rest to sip a little of the blood at that uncomfortable banquet. Ulysses was moved with compassion to see him among them, and asked him what untimely fate had brought him there, if storms had overwhelmed him coming from troy or if he had perished in some mutiny by his own soldiers at a division of the prey by none of these he replied did i come to my death but slain at a banquet to which i was invited by aegisthus after my return home he conspiring with my adulterous wife they laid a scheme for my destruction training me forth to a banquet as an ox goes to the slaughter and there surrounding me they slew me with all my friends about me climenestra my wicked wife forgetting the vows which she swore to me in wedlock would not lend a hand to close my eyes in death but nothing is so heaped with impieties as such a woman who would kill her spouse that married her a maid when i brought her home to my house a bride I hoped in my heart that she would be loving to me and to my children. Now her black treacheries have cast a foul aspersion on her whole sex. Blessed husbands will have their loving wives in suspicion for her bad deeds. Alas, said Ulysses, there seems to be a fatality in your royal house of Atreus, and that they are hated of Jove for their wives. For Helen's sake your brother Menelaus' wife, what multitudes fell in the wars of Troy? Agamemnon replied, For this cause be not thou more kind than wise to any woman. Let not thy words express to her at any time all that is in thy mind. Keep still some secrets to thyself, but thou by any bloody contrivances of thy wife never needst fear to fall exceeding wise she is and to her wisdom she has a goodness as eminent icarus's daughter penelope the chaste we left her a young bride when we parted from our wives to go to the wars her first child suckling at her breast the young telemachus whom you shall see grown up to manhood on your return and he shall greet his father with befitting welcomes my orestes my dear son I shall never see again. His mother has deprived his father of the sight of him, and perhaps will slay him as she slew his sire. It is now no world to trust a woman in. But what says fame? Is my son yet alive? Lives he in Orchomen, or in Pylos, or is he resident in Sparta, in his uncle's court? As yet, I see, divine Orestes is not here with me. To this, Ulysses replied he had received no certain tidings where Aristes abode, only some uncertain rumours which he could not report for truth. While they held this sad conference, with kind tears striving to render unkind fortunes more palatable, the soul of great Achilles joined them. What desperate adventure has brought Ulysses to these regions, said Achilles, to see the end of dead men and their foolish shades? Ulysses answered him that he had come to consult Tiresias, respecting his voyage home. But thou, O son of Thetis, he said, why dost thou disparage the state of the dead? Seeing that as alive thou didst surpass all men in glory, thou must needs retain thy pre-eminence here below, so great Achilles triumphs over death." but Achilles made reply that he had much rather be a pleasant slave upon the earth than reign over all the dead. So much did the inactivity and slothful condition of that state displease his unquenchable and restless spirit. Only he inquired of Ulysses if his father Peleus were living, and how his son Neoptolemus conducted himself. Of Peleus, Ulysses could tell him nothing, but of Neoptolemus he thus bore witness. From Skyros I convoyed your son by sea to the Greeks, where I can speak of him, for I knew him. He was chief in council and in the field. When any question was proposed, so quick was his conceit in the forward apprehension of any case, that he ever spoke first, and was heard with more attention than the older heads. Only myself and aged Nestor could compare with him in giving advice in battle i cannot speak his praise unless i could count all that fell by his sword i will only mention one instance of his manhood when he sat hid in the belly of the wooden horse in the ambush which deceived the trojans to their destruction i who had the management of that stratagem still shifted my place from side to side to note the behavior of our men in some i marked their hearts trembling through all the pains which they took to appear valiant and in others tears that in spite of manly courage would gush forth and to say truth it was an adventure of high enterprise and as perilous a stake as was ever played in war's game but in him i could not observe the least sign of weakness no tears nor tremblings but his hand stood on his good sword and ever urging me to set open the machine and let us out before the time was come for doing it, and when we sallied out, he was still first in that fierce destruction and bloody midnight desolation of King Priam's city. This made the soul of Achilles to tread a swifter pace, with high raised feet, as he vanished away, for the joy which he took in his son being applauded by Ulysses.' A sad shade stalked by, which Ulysses knew to be the ghost of Ajax, his opponent, when living in that famous dispute about the right of succeeding to the arms of the deceased Achilles, they being adjudged by the Greeks to Ulysses as the prize of wisdom above bodily strength. The noble Ajax, in despite, went mad and slew himself. The sight of his rival turned to a shade by his disputes so subdued the passion and emulation in Ulysses that for his sake he wished that judgment in that controversy had been given against himself, rather than so illustrious a chief should have perished for the desire of those arms which his prowess, second only to Achilles in fight, so eminently had deserved. "'Ajax!' he cried. All the Greeks mourn for thee, as much as they lamented for Achilles. Let not thy wrath burn for ever, great son of Telamon. Ulysses seeks peace with thee, and will make any atonement to thee that can appease thy hurt spirit. But the shade stalked on, and would not exchange a word with Ulysses, though he prayed it with many tears and many earnest entreaties he might have spoke to me said ulysses since i spoke to him but i see the resentments of the dead are eternal then ulysses saw a throne on which was placed a judge distributing sentence he that sat on the throne was minos and he was dealing out just judgments to the dead he it is that assigns them their place in bliss or woe then came by a thundering ghost the large-limbed Orion, the mighty hunter who was hunting there the ghosts of the beasts which he had slaughtered in the desert hills upon the earth, for the dead delight in the occupations which pleased them in the time of their living upon the earth. There was Titius, suffering eternal pains because he had sought to violate the honour of Latona as she had passed from Pytho into Panopeus. Two vultures sat perpetually preying upon his liver with their crooked beaks, which as fast as they devoured, it forever renewed, nor can he fray them away with his great hands. There was Tantalus, played for his great sins, standing up to his chin in water, which he can never taste, but still as he bows his head, thinking to quench his burning thirst, instead of water he licks up unsavoury dust. All fruits pleasant to the sight, and of delicious flavour, hang in ripe clusters about his head, seeming as though they offered themselves to be plucked by him. But when he reaches out his hand, some wind carries them far out of his sight into the clouds. So he is starved in the midst of plenty by the righteous doom of Jove in memory of that inhuman banquet at which the sun turned pale when the unnatural father served up the limbs of his little son in a dish as meat for his divine guests there was sisyphus that sees no end to his labours his punishment is to be for ever rolling up a vast stone to the top of a mountain which when it gets to the top falls down with a crushing weight and all his work is to begin again he was bathed all over in sweat that reeked out a smoke which covered his head like a mist his crime had been the revealing of state secrets there ulysses saw hercules not that hercules who enjoys immortal life in heaven among the gods and is married to hebe or youth but his shadow which remains below about him the dead flocked as thick as bats, hovering around and cuffing at his head. He stands with his dreadful bow, ever in the act to shoot. There also might Ulysses have seen and spoken with the shades of Theseus and Pirithos, and the old heroes, but he had conversed enough with horrors, therefore covering his face with his hands, that he might see no more spectres, he resumed his seat in his ship and pushed off. The bark moved itself without the help of any oar and soon brought him out of the regions of death into the cheerful quarters of the living and to the island of Aia, whence he had set forth. End of chapter 2